0: Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin, a podcast where author, speaker, and worldwide renewal leader, Dr. Ralph Martin, shares what the Holy Spirit is stirring up in the church right now, words of encouragement from the Lord to strengthen you for such a time as this. We are glad you can be with us this week as we seek to encourage you for this moment in history. And now, your host, Ralph Martin. Hi, we're doing something a little different this week because this book, that's the first major book I've done in seven years, just arrived, A Church in Crisis, Pathways Forward. And just a few weeks ago, I gave a summary of the book to uh, our country coordinators who are located all over the world. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit really helped me to express the essence of the book and give people a chance to know whether it's something they'd really like to have or not, and even if they didn't want to have it. It gives a good feel for what's really in the book. So uh, what we're doing is we're playing the audio of that Zoom conference I had with people over the world. We think it's going to be pretty inspiring. I think you're going to get a really good feel of of what's in this book. I think it's one of the most important books I've ever done. I think it addresses what's happening in the church and the world today. And I think it could be a tremendous support, a tremendous strength, tremendous insight Uh, And I hope that hearing my presentation will give you something of what's in the book. Now, there's 12 chapters. The first six chapters are talking about the crisis that we're going through in the church and in the culture. The next six chapters are labeled Pathways Forward. So I want to make sure that people know that even though this is a serious situation, there are some pathways we can take to move forward, to really respond to the situation and and resolve it. So chapter one, a time of confusion. Here I just kind of laid out across the whole board, all the different things that are going on that are extremely troubling, just as a way of introducing what what topics we're going to be taking. Chapter two is called, Is There a Solid Place to Stand? And this is about scripture. Uh, There was an original chapter in Crisis of Truth about scripture. There had to be one here too. Because scripture has continued to be under attack. It is under attack right now. You have the head of the Jesuit order throughout the world saying things like, Satan is just a symbol. How do we know what Jesus really said? Was anybody there with a tape recorder? If you cast doubt on the authority and reliability of sacred scripture, you've cut the legs out of the whole edifice of Catholic faith and mission. Then you have people like Father James Martin, another Jesuit who is really his career right now. His campaign right now is to get greater acceptance for LGBTQ people in the church, but he never speaks about the need of anybody in that lifestyle to repent. What he's really asking people to do is accept people in their sin with no challenge to repentance or conversion. He recently tweeted, he recently retweeted somebody's comment about sacred scripture, which says there's no question about it. Sacred scripture forbids homosexual activity. The question is, is sacred scripture, right? It's the kind of subtle, cynical, cynical, Asking questions, undermining, casting doubt. Lots of people in the Catholic Church today think sacred scripture is sort of old-fashioned, it's outmoded, it's from a previous age. The church has got to modernize and move beyond that. Uh, and once you cast doubt on a sacred scripture, you've completely cut the legs out of preaching and teaching. You, you've cut motivation out of evangelization, you cut motivation out of living a life of holiness you've opened people up to the world, the flesh and the devil. It's, it's, it's a bad scene. So that's what chapter two is about. Chapter three, is it all a game? Does everybody get a trophy in the end, no matter how they live and no matter how they respond to Jesus? The answer of course is no, but there's a very widespread spirit of universalism that everybody in the end is going to be saved. Uh, God's so merciful, he'll never let anybody be lost. Of course, that's just not true. Uh, Jesus, half of Jesus' parables is either 38 or 40 parables, depending on how people count them. Half of them are about the final separation of the human race, depending on how people respond to Jesus. Half of them, the, the, the wheat and the weeds, the good fish and the bad fish, the sheep and the goats, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, the door is going to close. Jesus tells us the door is going to close. And you need to be inside the Father's house when the door closes, or you'll be left out in the the outer darkness to, to weep and to gnash your teeth. Jesus is so clear and so serious about the urgent need to respond to him. And with good reason. The word has become flesh. God has united himself with human nature. What prophets and kings longed to see is now here for those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear. When the angels announced to the shepherd the birth of Jesus, they said, peace on earth to men of good will." When Jesus says, I'm saying things in parables, lest they understand and repent, lest they believe. He was basically talking about the the condition of human hearts. Some human beings have already decided for the darkness. And so when they encounter the light, they hate it and reject it. There's always the hope of repentance and change. But Jesus says the light came into the world. But those loved the darkness. It did not come to the light. So what we're talking about is a humongous battle. One phrase that's been in my mind recently is from the book of Revelations. War broke out in heaven. War! War broke out in heaven. A rebellion happened right in the realm of the Trinity. Michael. Lucifer. Lucifer. A battle broke out in heaven. War broke out in heaven. Some people say that the reason why war broke out in heaven is because the angels who are so far above humanity, who are so far superior beings, couldn't handle the divinity uniting himself with flesh and blood creatures, lowly human beings, those little earthlings down there. God taking on this lowly human nature and requiring all creation, all the angels to worship the God-man, to worship he was fully man and fully God. The angels, some say, couldn't handle worshiping God in human flesh, rebelled and say, I'm having nothing to do with this. And it talks about a third of the stars in heaven fell. Some think that's referring to the percentage of angels that fell compared to the percentage of angels who remained faithful. But they were cast down to the earth. And that battle is now going on on the earth. And the the good angels have come down to the earth, too. So that war that broke out in heaven is now raging on earth. And I think in a particularly intense form right now. You know, we, We've talked before about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the two things that Jesus says needs to happen before the Lord returns. One is the great apostasy. We've seen a horrible, massive apostasy in Catholic nation after Catholic nation. Horrible, horrible, horrible in Christian nations and Catholic nations. At one point, there used to be three European nations holding out against the deluge of atheistic secularism. There used to be Ireland, Malta, and Poland. Ireland has fallen. The spiritual powers in Ireland now that are in control are not the powers of God. The, the demons are infiltrating their lives into Irish culture. He who rules the whole world is now ruling Ireland. Malta was the second one. Seven years ago, Malta, 90% Catholic, seven years ago, Malta legalized divorce. I was talking to a bishop in Malta last year doing a priest retreat, and he said, That was the thread that has unraveled the whole garment. Everything's going to go now. Same-sex marriage is coming. Abortion is coming. The government no longer even consults the church. They just consult the radical change organizations that are pushing for these things. Poland is still holding out. And we might be able to add Hungary to that list, too. We're, we're Zoli. Yes, we might be able to add Hungary to that list. So we're having a terrible situation. The sexual revolution that started in the 60s is pushing on to its radical conclusion. No longer just fornicate and have fun, but now perverse sexuality, gender confusion. And not only that, but accept it and believe in it or you're going to be canceled. You're going to be excluded from polite society you're not going to be promoted in our university. You may not even be allowed to minister in our church. The sexual revolution has now reached such a confidence and such a power, such an intensity, it's requiring submission. The early Christians were forced to offer incense to the emperor. We are now being almost forced to offer incense to the sexual revolution to say there's nothing wrong with any of this. Anything goes as long as it's between consenting adults. And now there are people who want to lower the age of consent, lower and lower and lower. The spirit of perversity is is powerful. It's demanding submission. And it's very much influencing the church. Most, I would say, priests and bishops today, don't want to tell the truth about these areas when the readings come around in the liturgy each year. Most bishops and priests choose to comment on another reading, they don't want to talk about first Corinthians chapter 6. And yet, first Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21 are some of the most important information that people need to know in order to be saved. So, silence on these areas that conflict with our culture are turning people over to damnation. First Corinthians chapter six, it says, don't let anybody deceive you. The immoral and the underlying original word there is pornea, the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of God. And it mentions fornication and adultery and homosexual behavior, as well as a lot of other sins. There's a tremendous pressure coming from the culture to silence the gospel, to virtually make it illegal to say what Jesus tells we need to tell people in order for them to be saved. Jesus said, go out into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. Baptize them, make them disciples, and teach them everything I've told you. We have a solemn command from Jesus to pass on without editing, without omission, without addition, you know, the last words in Revelation, curse be he who adds anything to this message or takes anything from it away. So we need to do a lot to help strengthen our brothers and sisters in the priesthood, in the Episcopacy. We need to help strengthen the church and give it courage and give it confidence in the truth of the message, give it courage and confidence in who Jesus is and he really is the Lord and help them to speak the words of eternal life. Next chapter, how long will you straddle the issue? I'm going to, if I have time, I'm going to say some things particularly about that chapter. Chapter six, culpability. There's a big spirit of nobody could ever possibly commit a mortal sin. It's so hard to commit a mortal sin. The conditions are never fulfilled. Big lie. It's not what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about feigned ignorance, pretending you don't know. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says a sufficiently free decision, sufficiently free decision, doesn't mean there's not a a lot of other stuff floating around. So that's an important chapter. One of our most famous moral theologians actually said that was a real significant contribution to moral theology in our day. I'm not a moral theologian. I just accidentally following the Lord wrote a chapter like that just because the Lord showed me that this was an important issue that need to be clarified. Okay. Part two of the book, chapter seven, seeing and not seeing. It's almost like the official public relations policy of the Catholic church in many areas is official optimism. We, we hear lots of bishops say, oh, the church is doing great. It's really vibrant. You know, we have a vibrant church going on. We don't. We have a declining church in most of the developed countries. I mean, if you look at the statistics in traditionally Catholic areas and traditionally Catholic countries, except for a few exceptions, and we want to accept Africa, but in Latin America, in Australia, and Asia, except for a few exceptions, uh, in Europe, in North America, radical decline, quick decline, statistically verifiable decline. One of the most distressing things is every time they do a new survey about what Catholics actually believe or not, it's few and few Catholics <laughs> believing what Catholics believe. How did we go in 20 years from almost every Catholic believing that fornication homosexual behavior, uh, divorce and remarriage without getting an annulment was something that Catholics shouldn't do to now the majority of Catholics like, all those things are fine. I don't think we can explain the rapid decline other than some satanic power that's at work, working along with the flesh and the culture as they normally do. But it's almost like the acceleration can't be explained without supernatural power of the evil kind and and that power is really gaining strength we talked about the great apostasy the other condition that paul mentions in second thessalonians chapter 2 is jesus won't return until the restrainer on evil will be removed and then you'll see unrestrained lawlessness we're seeing all kinds of restraints on evil removed peter herbeck did a really good youtube video just a week or so ago where he talked about what he thought were the four restrainers holding back lawlessness. First of all, the natural law—that instinct for right and wrong that God puts in everybody's heart and mind. Second of all, uh, second of all, the uh, Peter. What was the second one? Un- unmute yourself. Oh, oh, government. You know, second one was government. It was the authority of government. Second one, second one's family, second one's family. Family, third one is government. First one's natural law, the restrainer is conscience. Second one is family, the restrainer is scripture calls it the rod, but the discipline and order of the family, the third is government, has the sword, and then the fourth is the church itself with the gospel. And all those restrainers are being sort of systematically deconstructed and weakened. And that's, right. then when that happens, wickedness rises in disorder and chaos. So that's, yeah. in, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, so it's a very good video in case you haven't seen it. But uh, I think all those four restrainers are being removed. What's particularly painful is the restrainer of the church is being removed. The church is no longer effectively restraining evil, but is more like trying to work out a truce with it. Trying to work out a deal with it, trying to say, well leave us alone and we won't really speak out on these things. I would say we're reaping what we sowed. If 30 or 40 years ago the Catholic bishops had taken reasonable action against so-called Catholic politicians who were saying there's no contradictory be, 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 no contradiction between being a Catholic and being pro-abortion, uh, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today. Terrible mistake of judgment. You know, people were so excited that John Kennedy, the first Catholic, ever got voted as President of the United States. We were disposed to overlook all kinds of things that followed in its wake. Including his really bad personal life. So I think When we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the church has a lot to answer for in what we've allowed to unleash on on the people of the world, on, on humanity. So rather than official optimism, what we need is realism and genuine Christian hope. If we don't face the facts about what's really going on, we will never adopt radical enough solutions that have a chance of really addressing the issues. But Christian hope is a powerful thing. It's not just wishful thinking. Christian hope is based on our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the Lord. And all power in heaven and earth has been put into his hands. And he's ready to exercise that power at the right time and the right way through his servants. But we are talking again about the possibility of becoming a remnant church. We may be moving towards that. You know, if the election coming up in the United States has a certain outcome, we may be able to restrain that evil for a while longer. But the evil is powerful and it's engulfing the world and the church. If the election turns out another way, all kinds of restraints are off. Next chapter, powers, principalities and organizations. Like I say, war has broken out in heaven. The battle is now on earth. and. It isn't just flesh and blood we're dealing with, but we're dealing with really mighty principalities and powers and lots of little minor demons that devote themselves to us personally. So we need to have spiritual eyes. We need to have spiritual discernment. We need to have the spiritual armor of God. You know, Paul says you don't have a chance in this war unless you put on the armor of God, unless you put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of holiness, the, Shield of faith, that's why undermining scripture is so dangerous, it's so evil. It takes away people's faith. That's why silencing the gospel is so dangerous. That's why intimidating people from preaching and teaching the truth is so dangerous. Faith normally comes through hearing the word of God. When the word of God is not spoken clearly, when the trumpet doesn't give a clear sound, who's going to come for battle? They're not only not going to come for battle, but they're going to join the other side, whether they know it or not are going to be swept away by the culture. So spiritual armor, and then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, preaching the word of God in power, preaching the word of God with confidence, with the authority that Christ has given us. Chapter nine, heading towards judgment. We're heading towards judgment one way or the other. I won't go into that chapter, uh, in that chapter, I do have Father Michael Scanlon's prophecy. Uh, if you haven't seen the YouTube video on it, uh, just go to just go to YouTube and put in Father Michael Scanlon's prophecy. Uh, it's a really significant prophecy that's really applicable to our times. It's been translated now into eight or nine different languages. I told you it got 253,000 views on YouTube, and it's still going up. Uh, it talks about judgment in the Old Testament. It talks about. I'm reading the Book of Jeremiah right now, and uh, I'm almost finished. And it's, it's unbelievable, the severity of God's punishment on infidelity to the covenant, on false worship, on immorality, on adultery, on oppressing the poor. I mean, I've read Jeremiah a a bunch of times over my life. This time, it's like, oh my goodness, this is really severe punishment, being slaughtered. Being taken off into exile. Uh, I mean, having your eyes gouged out. I mean, I mean, it's just kind of like, like, I don't know. I've, I, I'm shocked by it. I have two two YouTube videos coming up on that in the next couple of weeks. Shocking judgments. Chapter ten: A time for repentance. Once we start being real about our actual situation once we actually identify how we got here there's going to be a need for repentance we know that in our personal lives all the time but we need a, we need repentance in a life as a, of a church and i i provided a little bit of an examination of conscience for those who would like to avail themselves of it uh how we as a body how we as a church need to really take a look at where we've come from what we've done what we haven't done and ask god for mercy it's very much in the spirit of St. John Paul II's solemn day of repentance and pardon for the jubilee year 2000. You know, Pope John Paul II said, you know, we're not going to be able to get into real renewal, really a new springtime, unless we really kind of fess up to ways in which we as a church haven't been faithful to the Lord. And he he led a very solemn uh, liturgy of repentance at St. Peter's Basilica and in the year 2000, March and uh, ask God solemnly for mercy and repentance for all different kinds of things that we as as a people had failed the Lord in. Chapter 11, a time for action, the stuff we can do. And then chapter 12, the last chapter, the inexhaustible riches of Christ. The inexhaustible riches of Christ. The treasures that God has given us in Jesus are inexhaustible. The power he's given us in Jesus is inexhaustible. We just need to step forward with the prophetic zeal of Jesus himself and announce the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. And I just feel like the Lord wants to empower us for a level of preaching and teaching that participates in the prophetic zealous spirit of of Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and of Jesus Maybe I could just spend, let me look at the schedule. Yes, I know this is going on a little bit long, but I would like to say a few things about uh, Chapter 5, straddling the issue. I'll definitely finish by one fifteen, which is the schedule. This is the chapter heading of chapter five. How long will you straddle the issue? And then I quote 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. I think in a lot of ways, the church is straddling the issue today. We'd like to preserve our political influence. We'd like to preserve our social influence. We'd like to still be invited to cool things with secular people. At the same time, we'd like to be faithful to Jesus. And there's a real, we're being torn apart, we're being torn in two, individuals are being torn apart, bishops are being torn, priests are being torn, Catholics are being born, are being torn. We need to make a decision. We need to get both feet into the kingdom unabashedly and accept the consequences accept the consequence of social exclusion, accept the consequence of political persecution, whatever. We need to make the choice that Jesus is our primary loyalty. Now, there's a lot of governments that are actually working to crush all religion, just like the communists did in the Soviet Union. They don't want anybody to have a higher loyalty than to the revolution. They don't want anybody to have a higher loyalty rather than to the ruling elite that's supposedly ruling for the sake of the proletariat, but actually living a corrupt life. China right now is engaged in a really intense, brutal campaign to make every single religious body in China subservient to the state and to say it. We just recently had a Chinese Catholic bishop saying the law of the Communist Party is more important than canon law. There's there's traitors in our midst. There's a fifth column in our midst. There's people who have already gone over to the other side whose loyalties are with the powers that be for the rewards that they get or out of fear or whatever. We have to stop straddling the issue. One of the ways in which this is now taking shape is in a coalition of different forces coming together. You might call it a global, ecological, uh, reproductive rights, uh, sexual permissiveness, uh, secular power. I don't know what it's called, but it's coming together right now. The powers and principalities work through individual people, and they work through organized groups. One of the things that's happening right now is... uh, Ecology is being raised up to a place in the Catholic worldview that is starting to overshadow the primary mission of the church, which is to preach salvation in the name of Jesus. It's not by denying the gospel, but it's by elevating secondary issues to almost a primary place. This happened back in the 80s with liberation theology. And that's why when the 70s, 80s into the 90s, uh, and that's why when Pope Paul VI published his document, Evangelii Andi, he had to talk about what true liberation was. Because powerful theology, actually born in Germany, but supposedly coming out of Latin America, uh, that uh, social, political, economic liberation is really where the action is these days. And if we really love people, that's what we're really going to focus on. There's a truth to it. Partially, there's a truth to the the obligation of Christian charity and common good and loving our neighbor to concern about all those things. And it's a terrible thing to pollute the world. It's a terrible thing to not pay just wages. It's a terrible thing not to care about these things, but they're not the primary mission of the church. And what tends to happen is they get spoken about in such a way, with such frequency, with such fervor, that they tend to implicitly downgrade the importance of preaching the gospel. So listen to this. Leonardo Boff, who was a Franciscan priest who's like one of the fathers of liberation theology in the 70s and 80s, was corrected by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, refused to accept the correction in his theology, left the priesthood, and is now like a, a lay Catholic theologian in Brazil. He just wrote something recently which said, liberation theology is back. And this was an interview with him. Buff claimed that Pope Francis is one of us. He has turned liberation theology into a common property of the church, and he has widened it. The whole earth is crying. Also, says the Pope, and he thus quotes one of the titles of one of my books, we have to hear simultaneously the cry of the poor and the cry of the earth. The Pope asked me for material for the sake of his encyclical, Laudato Si', I have given him my counsel and sent to him some of what I have written, which he has also used. Some people told me they were thinking while reading, wait, that's Boff. Now, whether Boff was indeed quite the source he claims is impossible to determine, but it's certainly true that themes that he frequently writes about found their way into the encyclical. Boff also wrote an article for a Brazilian publication that claims that the coronavirus is Gaia's revenge. Gaia is the earth goddess. Gaia's revenge for ecological sins and that while she may continue to spin through the solar system she may no longer want us on the planet since we are guilty of ecocide or geocide. So the earth is now trying to spin us off the planet because of the crimes we've committed against the earth. Pope Francis has repeated on more than one occasion the same mantra God always forgives, man sometimes forgives, but nature never forgives. So when Pope talks about the coronavirus, he talks about the earth crying out and it being the revenge of the earth. One of the recurring subtexts of what's now being called integral environmentalism, which is appearing in many, many papal documents now, is that human beings are the problem and that the population must be severely reduced. To see the Vatican, the United Nations, And population control secularists like Jeffrey Sachs and George Soros aligning together to save the planet is indeed troubling. An alien ideology is being smuggled into the church under the cover of noble sentiments, still using Christian words but working for a very different agenda. One of the main people pushing this right now is the uh, president of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, Bishop Sarando, who's an Argentine bishop. He returned from a recent visit to the People's Republic of China, claiming that they are implementing Catholic social teaching better than anywhere else. Quote, at this moment, those who best realize the social doctrine of the church are the Chinese. Horrible, horrible deception. This guy is so influential that over the last 10 years or so, he's brought Jeffrey Sachs to Vatican conferences 20 times, 20 times. Who Jeffrey Sachs is, is one of the world's leading population control experts in favor of abortion, reproductive health services, contraception, sex education for young people. He's been the main go-to guy for all these conferences that the Vatican has been having on how to deal with uh, social issues. For the fourth consecutive year as a side conference, to the Youth Synod in 2019, just last year, Bishop Sarando and Jeffrey Sachs hosted an October 15th Youth Symposium at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, co-sponsored by the Vatican and the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, directed by Jeffrey Sachs. It's titled Intergenerational Leadership, La Dato C si and the sustainable, De- sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals are goals that the United Nations has set to implement in every country of the world. Goals number three, goals number seven, and goals number five point six are devoted to assuring by 2030 universal access to sexual and reproductive health services, including for family planning and the integration of reproductive health into national strategies and programs throughout the world. The language of reproductive health is always interpreted to mean contraception and abortion. At the end of the conference, the Catholic youth at this Vatican sponsored conference held up signs, each endorsing one of the goals, including the two goals calling for reproductive health services. In February of 2020, at another Vatican conference, Jeffrey Sachs promised that he would bring huge financial resources. He's promising the Vatican $26 billion a year. And the resources of the United Nations, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the International Monetary Fund, and some of the world's leading billionaires to support Pope Francis's initiatives. Pope Francis has launched an initiative called the Global Education Pact, to create a new humanism. Jeffrey Sachs also attacked the United States as the last nation standing in the way of a new global humanism. George Soros and Jeffrey Sachs particularly singled out President Trump as the only one standing in the way of this global initiative being able to be adopted. Whatever you think about President Trump, and it's very difficult to watch him in action. He is oftentimes a bully, and it's, it's just people ask me if he's a real Christian. I don't know, but if he's a real Christian, he needs a lot of formation. But he is single-handedly under incredible pressure standing against abortion, standing for pro-life, uh, standing for religious freedom. One of the things most at stake right now in the coming American election, and this is not just for the United States, but it will affect the whole world, is religious freedom. Pretty soon, Catholic doctors and Catholic nurses won't be able to opt out of doing abortions. Pretty soon, Catholic schools won't be able to adopt curriculum that doesn't include a revision of American history with less leftist ideology. Pretty soon, uh, The screws are going to tighten, and they're tightening all over the world. The pressure is all over the world. The European Union is furious with Poland and Hungary for resisting some of these secularist initiatives. They will do anything to defeat them. They'll put in money to people who are running against them in elections. They're trying to destroy them in every way possible. The tactics of this Marxist-influenced global coalition to destroy their opponents, to destroy those who are standing in the way, are unparalleled. Even in amongst our own bishops here in the United States, there's a division. The bishops aren't united. There's a division amongst the bishops. They're pretending that there's a unity, but there isn't. Recently, the Bishop of Lansing, Bishop Boyer, our own bishop, decided he wouldn't support any longer the annual collection for the Campaign for Human Development that goes to human development organizations because almost every year for the last 20 years, it turns out that money's being sent to organizations that undermine the church's teaching. Every year they say, we're going to clean this up, we're going to clean this up, it never gets cleaned up. Finally, our bishop bravely took the stance, we're not going to give to that collection anymore. I don't know what's happening in Washington, they're not cleaning it up, we're not going to give to that collection anymore. We're going to take up our own collection for the poor. So this is an infection that's infiltrated many, many parts of the church. Now, I want to say a few things about George Soros for the sake of Zoli and penny Probably your favorite Hungarian, right? <laughs> yeah. George Soros is a Hungarian who immigrated to New York and ran one of the most significant investment firms of all times, amassing billions of dollars. When he was once criticized for how his investment policies were harming people and even whole nations on a 60 Minutes TV interview, he replied, I don't feel guilty because I am engaged in an amoral activity which is not meant to have anything to do with guilt. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of what I do. At a certain point, Soros decided he had enough money and began to deploy it to accomplish his political, economic, and social goals. His lead foundation, Open Society Foundations, has more than $19.5 billion in assets and an operating annual budget of $1.3 billion. Through a whole network of foundations and international organizations, Soros is active in more than 120 countries, giving thousands of grants to promote his goals. He has already spent more than $32 billion in furthering his objectives. In January of 2020, at the Davos World Economic Forum in Switzerland, he announced, quote, the most important and enduring project of his life, the Open Society University Network, whose goal is to influence teaching and research in existing universities all over the world in order to, among other things, fight dictatorship. When he was asked how to determine who is and who is not a dictator, he replied, quote, A perfect way to tell a dictator or a would-be dictator is if he identifies me as an enemy. He 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 must have been joking, but anyway, I think he believes that. What are his goals? They overlap significantly with those of his close collaborator and advisor, Jeffrey Sachs, such as climate change. But with a particular emphasis on open borders and unrestricted immigration and migration, and a global approach to solving problems utilizing international organizations with a diminishment of the rights of nation states, run by a global secular elite rather than individual countries. He also invests heavily in influencing journalism schools and training thought leaders at universities. He's putting his money into communicating another gospel, another message. He's putting it in strategic places. He's putting it in journalism schools. In the United States, there's hardly any journalism left. It's all advocacy. I mean, if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post almost any day, every single article is saying how horrible Trump is. Trump is horrible, but they're distorting completely what the issues are. and They're trying to get him out of the way because he's holding strong against the pro-life stuff, religious freedom, right of conscience, and so things like that. The website of his lead foundation has rather sanitized language about its goals, but as you drill down, you find things like promoting acceptance of same-sex relationships and the usual concern for health care, which also emphasizes reproductive health care. Soros sees the United States as an obstacle in accomplishing his global progressive socialist diminishment of the nation-state goals. He contributes a great deal of money to support candidates who support his global goals and he supports open borders, even in very local elections, including American elections. Recently, the United States Attorney General warned that Soros was putting money behind radical left candidates running in very local elections to become prosecuting attorneys who will support open borders and turn from traditional law enforcement to support inclusive social change. Some of these radical left prosecuting attorneys have been successfully elected and are now refusing to prosecute the violence and mayhem looting and arson that has accompanied recent riots in the United States, but are prosecuting police and others trying to defend life and property from destruction. He gives heavily to Planned Parenthood, the American Civil Liberties Union. He's actively involved in influencing the the direction of culture, education, and politics in countries all over the world. But he sees the United States, under its current leadership, as the biggest obstacle to a new global humanism. Two more minutes. When the coronavirus pandemic broke out, he saw it as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to accomplish his revolutionary goals. Quote, this is the crisis of our lifetime. Even before the pandemic hit, I realized that we were in a revolutionary moment where what would be impossible or even inconceivable in normal times has become not only possible, but absolutely necessary. Then came COVID-19, which has totally disrupted people's lives and required very different behavior. It's an unprecedented event that probably has never occurred in this combination. And then somebody who leads his organization, his executive director after the Black Lives Matter movement came to prominence, Soros' foundation committed $220 million to progressive black-led organizations and another $7 million, $70 million to organizations working to change policing and to train young political activists. Huge sums are being put into a radical agenda. Patrick Gaspard, the president of the Soros Foundation, said now was the time for them to double down on their investment in social and political change. Quote, the moment we've been investing for for the last 25 years is here. It's time to double down. And we understood we could place a bet on these activists, black and white, who see this as a moment of not just incrementalism, but whole reform. It's Soros who's promising huge funds to Pope Francis for his new global initiative for a new humanism. Last quote. Cardinal Muller has warned about what's happening. Quote, there are powers interested in creating panic among the world's population with the sole aim of permanently imposing unacceptable forms of restriction on freedoms, of controlling people and of tracking their movements. The imposition of these illiberal measures is a disturbing prelude to the realization of a world government beyond all control. Well, there's so much more, but that's, that's why the book is, this is like only one third of chapter five. There's a war going on. We're in it. We're in a great place in it. We're in the hands of the Lord. We believe the Word of God. We believe His teaching. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We know the inexhaustible riches of Christ, and we're eager to do our part in the battle. We're eager to keep on. We're eager to preach and teach. We're eager to love. We're eager to pray. We're eager to sacrifice. We're eager to suffer for the sake of Jesus. What a a privileged place we are in. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, part of the Renewal Podcast Network. For more information about Renewal Ministries, visit our website at renewalministries.net. Join us next week to find strength, hope, and courage for the Christian journey. Until next time, this is Right Now with Ralph Martin.